over to Susie Grogan for Talking Books. Thank you. Thank you very much, Pauline. Um, I can't help thinking that might be a trick question somewhere along the line. It just feels a little bit too easy for words. Um, Well, good morning and welcome to Talking Books. I'm going to be sitting in front of an empty chair again this morning. Um, The countdown to Christmas is well and truly on. I have the Advent candles alight and an Advent calendar for me and for the dog. Um, The time will, I'm sure, race away from us now as the big day approaches, um, but I hope I can at least offer you some ideas for presents for the book lovers in your life, especially those who love the salty sea air and stories of the rocks and sandbanks that lay traps for unwary sea dogs. My guest this morning is on the line from the north of England, but her books describe events that feature around many parts of the British coastline, especially in these rocky parts. Shipwrecks fascinate us all, and the human stories behind many of the tragedies are part of British history. My guest, author Jill Hoffs, has made it her vocation to highlight the stories behind some of the lesser-known wrecks, and she undertakes painstaking research to discover the causes of the tragedies and more about the lives of the people involved. Her telling of these true tales of skullduggery, incompetence and tragedy are as fast-paced and thrilling as a schooner with the wind in her sails. So I'm hoping Jill's on the line. Hello, Jill. Hello, Susie. Hello, I'm glad you're there. Um, It's always that slightly nerve-wracking moment when I start the interviews with people on the phone. Anyway, it's lovely lovely to have you on the show and thank you for coming on this morning. My pleasure. First of all, I, I have to say how much I've enjoyed both your books, The, the Sinking of the RMS Taylor and The Lost Story of the William and Mary. Have you always had a fascination with the sea? I have. I grew up beside the seaside. Um, I grew up in a little tiny fishing village um, in a 16th century cottage where if there was a storm, you actually got the salt on the windows. So um, it's always been part and parcel of who I am. Yes, yeah, so it, it's it's something that you've 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 literally grown up with, um, and I'm getting a bit of interference on the line. Are you all right? I'm okay. Can, can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Oh. I'm just checking. Um, now, the, the sto- your first shipwreck book, the, the Sinking of the RMS Taylor, is, is subtitled The Lost Story of the Victorian Titanic. And the second's sort of a lost story as well. How do you even find out about these terrible tales? Sheer luck. <laughs> <laughs> um, with the first one, uh, with the, the Taylor book, it was literally from a walk into my local museum in Warrington. Um, they had a porthole there. A curator got talking to me about it. And I found out that although we were inland, we'd actually had this massive shipbuilding industry um, that nobody really knew about. And the research for that shipwreck uh, led to me finding out about these other shipwrecks, the William and Mary and the one that I'm researching just now. They were massive stories at the time. So luckily, there's lots to find out on the likes of British Newspaper Archive online. But um, nobody now really knows about them. That's the thing, isn't it? Because when you when you think about the the details behind, certainly the Taylor book, it's something that um, was as big a story at the time as the we think about the Titanic now, isn't it? And it was actually the same company behind the tragedy. Yes. Um, well, there was a lot of money uh, put into squashing the story. There was huge business in human cargo at the time in terms of. Um, filling ships up with immigrants and sending them off so nobody wanted a loss of faith in this and well money talks yes sadly yeah 
Um, now, when you're undertaking the research um, into these books, what sort of things? I know, like me, you use the British newspaper archive a lot, but you also do a lot of family history research, don't you? I do. I use sites like Ancestry and Find My Past, and then I also I use um, just general search engines like Google Books and use um, like key addresses for like the, the people involved and some of their family names and just see what else comes up because some of the wonderful out-of-print books um, have, have amazing details and they seem to have absolutely no fear of libel whatsoever. <laughs> so you get all these incredible gossipy details. You go, yes. right, I'm using that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, and when you're undertaking the, the research into the, the, the Taylor book, there was you, you actually wrote a fabulous piece for my blog, didn't you, about um, the impact of, of Victorian ladies' underwear on the tragedy. Um, so it was actually something, you know, that you, you take these stories out widely to, the, to really interesting tangents. Oh, thank you. Well, what I find is that um, my assumptions about the past um, are, are regularly overturned um, and I'm glad to, to have this extra knowledge I'm glad to have the internet to allow me to do this yes. my knowledge of history at school was a, it was a huge turn off it was just learning dates by rote and political parties and kings and queens and I, I, uh, I chose, his, I chose um, geography instead yes so did so I <laughs> I regret it now <laughs> <laughs> so I'm coming at it as someone who's very curious I think every writer has to have enormous curiosity and always be wondering about things and the past is um like somebody more famous than he said um a foreign country mm. but they have so much in common with us too so I, I don't like to assume oh well you know they would have done this because i like to go and try and find an account that says well this particular person who maybe represents many others like them did it because of you know x y or z and in doing so, I'm finding you know, so many incredible things. But I'm also finding ways in which they're just like us. So, for example, in my second book, there was somebody writing home after this awful shipwreck, and he'd made it to America safely. And he wrote home to his mum and dad to say how happy he was because in America you got to eat meat every day <laughs> and <laughs> plenty of bacon. And I thought, well, you know, I could meet this person on the street right now. You know, they're yes. just like us. Yes. Yeah, and it's the social history side of things rather than simply the the, the um, seafaring side of things that interest you. It is, because these ships were like communities at sea. And um, as, as one author from then said, um, Dana, who um, actually wrote about his experiences at sea, if somebody dies at sea, you miss them incredibly because th there's nobody to fill that gap. So if you're on a ship that's having a long journey across the Atlantic, for example, like the William and Mary, and you've got a lot of people dying off, um, you really feel it. You really feel that, that loss because you've got nobody new coming in. You've got nobody mm -hmm. to distract yourself with. You're always going to be seeing that extra space at the table or that extra space in the berth um, and maybe seeing other people wearing that person's clothes. So it really rubs it in. And I find that really intriguing that the, there's these kind of like contained communities with no kind of outside influence, and they're they're, they're literally trapped on this small vessel um, and having to get on with each other. And I don't think I could do it. I mean, I like my own company. I like my cats. I, I don't like being around lots of people. So that would be my idea of hell. And and they've 
put themselves through it with, with the aim of getting somewhere better. And I applaud them for doing so. Yes, many of them. I mean, it, um, without going into to too much detail, I mean, that certainly the William and Mary story, I, mean, we'll, I think we'll just go into a little bit about the background to both of them, but the William and Mary story um, echoes um, present-day issues with regard to emigration, doesn't it, and immigration, in terms of the way that they are at the mercy of the captain of the boat or whoever sold them the ticket and really they just have to stay put and live with whatever horrors they're um they're faced with yes and then as now um there was this horrible climate of you know it's absolutely fine for people from here to go somewhere else not fine for somebody from somewhere else to, to come here you know it's this total cognitive dissonance around it yes. um utterly unacceptable to me personally and um, th th these people, uh, they were treated like trash. Um, they were less worthy of good treatment and proper care and respect than um, livestock or just ordinary cargo. They were literally seen as human cargo that would load itself, take care of itself and get off at the other end. And they paid up front. Yes. So it was actually um, cheaper for the, the shipping lines and the captains if they did die off on the voyage. And there was nobody to really fight their corner. They were too poor for that. The, the lost story of the William and Mary is, is subtitled The Cowardice of Captain Stinson, isn't it? Because the overwhelming feeling one gets when reading that book is that he really had no idea, almost no idea, what he was doing, in a sense. It wasn't simply a matter of cowardice. It was a matter of incompetence as well, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, he's just a, a repugnant man. Um, yes. I mean, I gather that he, he was kind of quite charming and he had the surface gloss that you would expect from somebody in that kind of position of power. But when it came to it, he was totally out of his depth um, and, and he was really lacking in moral fibre, um, <laughs> to kind of coin a rather Victorian <laughs> phrase. Yes. Um, he was the son-in-law of one of the owners and I, I rather suspect that's why he got the job because I can't find any record of him being a captain before that. And he certainly gave it up soon enough. Yes, and he did, didn't he? Plenty of sea captains had been through worse wrecks than that and still carried on because that was what they did. So um, I think it speaks volumes about the kind of person he was. And when you talk about the, the um, passengers on the voyage, um, I understand that all Captain Stinson had in the way of of medical knowledge on the trip was a book in his top pocket, wasn't it? And it's sort of like a, almost like a first aid for captains. Yeah, he had some curious pamphlet. I, I have tried to sort, like, search it out on Google Books. I've not managed to find it. Um, he had, gosh, it was so, it was such a quack thing to do mm -hmm. because if somebody had awful fever and they were dying, he'd prescribe them bacon <laughs> to, tr to treat it. And... You know, in some respects, um, I can kind of see his logic because he was starving everybody on board. He was withholding their their provisions and their rations. So mm -hmm. they were already, you know, malnourished in a terrible state. And so maybe giving them a bit of extra food would have been a bit of a boost. But in terms of medicine, no, I don't think that would work. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it to any of your listeners. And they were basically just really lucky because one of the passengers happened to be a doctor. Yes. I mean, he was supposed to have a ship surgeon on board, yes. and he just didn't bother. Um, instead, they had this, this language barrier, because 
the um, the chap who acted as doctor in these medical emergencies, um, he, he was actually Frisian. He was from um, the kind of Holland area. And he, he was a lovely guy. He you know, did anything he could for anybody. Although he was quite shocked when um, some of the women on board were um, getting a bit boozed up to help them cope with birth. Um, but he really, he really worked his socks off. And he wasn't even remotely paid for this. No, he was and just doing what he could. He was just doing what he could as a, as a, as a human, as a decent human. Yes. Um, and exactly as you were saying uh, a little bit earlier, those um, passengers who were dying were often from the same family, weren't they? I mean, people were losing their children and they were losing husbands and they were just having to carry on in the same group on that boat, you yes. know, travelling through a nightmare. They had no idea it was going to be like that. No, no, uh, it was really dreadful. And sometimes if people were being buried overboard and it would be perhaps in the clothes that they're wearing and it, you know, you'd be shocked, you'd be traumatised by this you'd be really grief-stricken um, and once they're overboard you realise actually some of your important documents or your savings are actually in that person's clothes yes. you've got no way of getting it back it's not like um, on land where you can perhaps disinter somebody just to get that yeah. <laughs> you know like no you've lost it for good that poet with his poems you know but um <laughs> Dante, Dante Gabriel Rossetti <laughs> that's the one so you can't do anything like that um mm. so they were really really stuck but the when you you know you you learn about the 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 whole um it's the, the whole uh picture of the of the of the time on board you go into the clothing they would have worn and the sort of thing you you go into a lot of detail don't you and, and when you were writing the tailor book didn't you find out that some people sewed their money into their dresses and things that meant that actually that would make them more vulnerable should they be wrecked wasn't there something like that yeah people were actually recommended to do this um rather than trusting their money to the captain's safe if they had money um they were they were advised to avoid paper money because it was more likely to rot or get eaten by rats and cockroaches and such like, and so like uh, coins or jewellery into their undergarments, and it acted like a weight belt. So it meant um, if you had say you know your your family fortune sewn into your corset, you still had to maintain that silhouette. So it would yanked in. Like, ouch! <laughs> yeah, it was super constricting. Um, but you'd also be incredibly weighed down, and you'd be really loath to part with this, even when the ship's going down, because you'd know you wouldn't get enough compensation to make up for that. You know, if you lost everything, you lost everything. That was it. End of. Yes, and and actually, with the um, the RMS Taylor, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Um, Sorry, I've just got somebody squeezing behind me. <laughs> so apologies for a moment. Um, wasn't it that actually there was a greater number of women died um, because they were wearing these constrictive clothes? Yes. I mean, nobody made anything about this at the time. Nobody even commented on this. Um, this is something that I came to when I was, like, number crunching, trying to work out, because I was thinking, gosh, there's only three women survived. That can't be. Well, how many? Does, how many is that compared to the men that survived in terms of percentages because there was more men on board um you know single men were more likely to make that journey than single women um and it worked out that in percentages 
about 59% of the men survived compared to less than 3% of the women. Yes, it was shocking figures. Yeah, and about 3% of the children too. And um, I found that shocking in itself. And then I also found it shocking that that just was not remarked upon. That was just wasn't seen as um, of interest to the people at the time. Um, now, when you actually write, I mean, I know that I've sent you a few messages in the past where you've been saying, oh, I've only written 3,000 words today or something. <laughs> <laughs> Your writing life is a busy one, isn't it? Because you've, you've, got a, you've got a young son as well. So how do you find the time to do all this fabulous research? Um, I just don't really do anything else. <laughs> I can help it. Um, because it's things that I'm genuinely passionate about and genuinely curious about. So it doesn't really feel like work. Um, so when other people, well, when my family, for example, <laughs> might be sitting next to me and playing a computer game or watching a film or wanting to go out for a walk or something, I'm like, well, I really kind of need to hammer down if this was somebody's sister or their cousin or their wife. Yes. <laughs> and just doggedly keep doing it. Um, if I'm in the middle of research or in the middle of writing, I tend to get by on just a few hours sleep a night um, and use any time that I possibly can to just be digesting information, making connections and, well, writing, um, physically writing. So, yeah, that that would be it. But a horribly unhealthy lifestyle. <laughs> and lots, that lots of no chocolate. Yes. <laughs> You're a woman after my own heart when it comes to writing. Definitely. I'm thinking, oh, it's okay. Jill Hoffs has eaten half a tub of Nutella as well. Is <laughs> <Thank> it? <laughs> you. Actually, when that, sometimes when I go to events and things and people will actually give me a gift of Nutella with like a sticker on it that says writer fuel. Yes. Like, you know me so well. Thank you for that. that well help. That's a chapter right there. <laughs> Christmas is a great time with all these extra special offers on chocolate as well. We should both get a lot of writing done over Christmas and the new year. Well, actually, for breakfast, I had my brother-in-law's present because I couldn't resist this box of old teeth. <laughs> I'll have to do that again. It's shocking. But you're, you're well into your third book now, aren't you? And that's another shipwreck story. It is. I'm, what I'm enjoying about it, if that's the right word, is that it's, in some ways it's very similar to um, the first shipwreck because it's this enormous tragedy. It's really unexpected, it's really shocking. In some ways it's like the second one because there are heroes and villains um, abounding yes. <laughs> galore. But um, in many ways it's very different because this ship actually had um, livestock on board and which really extra breaks my heart. Um, mm. And also it was consumed by fire and that wasn't oh, really a factor yeah. in the other two. The other two, um, they, they wrecked, it was you know the weather, um, dodgy compasses, that type of thing. Yes, um, incompetence. <laughs> massive incompetence um, was a factor. With this one, it caught fire. And although you might think, well, you're surrounded by sea. Yes. <laughs> You've got water everywhere, that should be fine. It really wasn't. And um, literally 15 minutes later, um, they'd lost so many people on board and the whole thing was just woof up in flames. Yes. And... Uh, it, it, I found it really shocking, the speed of it, and also how they handled it. They didn't have anything that remotely you know, a, approached what we would expect in terms of safety. They couldn't even reach the fire. They had only 12 buckets on board, and when they cut open the decks to try and get down to the fire so they could reach it with the water, so you know, running past passengers and going up and down the stairs, um, it just meant the air got to the fire and it just kind of exploded. So 
I'm finding it really, really interesting to see the mechanics of this, but also to find out that you know the people involved and, and track down descendants and say, oh, I found out where you know your triple great grandmother is actually buried. Previously, they were anonymous, but I've gone through the the lists of um, you know bodies that have washed up and the details involved, like what's in their pockets and what initials are sewn into their undergarments, mm-hmm. and this is her, and this is where she she is buried. So you can now visit her grave. You've you've had some wonderful responses from people, haven't you? Actually, when you've you've undertaken yeah. this work, it's a bit like who do you think you are? Oh, it is, it is. It's mm. been amazing because um, I'm I'm literally be able to get people that are otherwise unmourned and unremembered mm. and memorialise them and say to um, descendants who who are into their family history or they wouldn't be on ancestry in the first place, um, yes. but perhaps haven't made the connection that well this person the reason they disappear from the census is this or it's not a stepfather that is their father it's just that they've been transported for years and they've come back yes. so it's it's joining those dots for people and it's, it's, a, it's an honor to be able to do that it's a privilege it gives me a huge high because you've actually been able to visit some of the sites haven't you that are that are you know feature in your books yes um I was really lucky to be able to go over to see where the tailor wrecked and then to return um, with the the film crew for Coast for the BBC. And that was just amazing. And to actually be where these people were, to see the cliffs that they climbed, to to walk across the island that they had to stay on, it it was just astonishing. And and to actually be on the the grass that they walked on and touch the rocks Mm -hmm. just put me right in touch with them. in a very kind of loveyish way. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it does, doesn't it? You can almost hear the echoes in some places of, of these dreadful events. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it was so traumatic. And any plans to visit the Bahamas? Because that's where, I mean, the William and Mary, it, basically the, the, the lives of many of the, the passengers were saved by wreckers off the coast of the Bahamas, weren't they? They were. And um, it's been great to be able to talk to, to their descendants as well and say, gosh, what heroes they were. Um yeah, there are actually. Um, the museum's doing some fundraising to um, get me over there on a book tour, so I'm going to have to get like, my factor 5,000 block. <laughs> <laughs> very Your Scottish crazy. background. Is, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah, I'm like a vampire. But um, <laughs> I, I'm really looking forward to that and actually um, visiting the beaches where they had to stay and the garrison where the survivors were put up and treated for yellow fever. And I, I'm just so looking forward to it. I, I'm going to, I know that I'll be bumping into people who are descended from people who, who directly helped these survivors and, and actually be able to visit graves as well. So Yes, because they may never have guessed that their no. their um, ancestors had even been part of something so noble, because, I mean, they were wreckers, weren't they? Yeah. So, that, you yeah. know, that, that's only half the story. Oh, totally. And, I mean, one of them was even given a silver medal by what became the RNLI and was the first person to be given this medal outside of the UK and Ireland. Because usually it was something that would only be given to people that um, you know, had these incredible acts of, of bravery around this coast. So that they actually sent it out to the Bahamas for him um, was incredible. And it was a real kind of boost to... Um, the profile of the islands and the and the profile of the wreckers too because yes. they were kind of seen as you know greedy scavengers that wasn't the case at all far from it no it was the captain of the william and mary was the greedy one oh, in yeah. in a sense you know yeah. he, he certainly doesn't come out um with any kind of um 
glory or or anything other than well you have to just feel that he was a criminal in in many senses there's there's hints of murder as well aren't there some of the crew were possibly murdered them i mean the stories i have to say to listeners that if you read um jill hoff's books although they're absolutely meticulously researched they read like a romp through a, a wonderful story that you know of, obviously the person who's i mean you, you write with such passion about them as if you feel these people need a representative um in the 21st century to get their stories out there and the, for anybody who loves maybe sort of like a c.s forrester story or anybody who loves the sea you'll get a real sense of the of the salty sea air when you're reading them and they read like a thriller so i mean how do you, you you write fiction as well don't you you don't just write non-fiction you are a fiction writer so do you bring some of that into the into the narrative definitely um i mean i will say that i keep my non-fiction fiction totally separate in terms of mindset for facts because um if if in one of my books you, you see that there's a description of someone wearing for example a blue coat that's only there because I found that a, w- a witness has said, oh, and the captain was walking about in his blue frock coat. Otherwise, I leave it out because I don't. I, I feel it would be deeply unfair to the people involved to be um, making things up for them. Yes. They, they've said enough that I can use their details and use their language. Yes. Um, but I, I do, if I'm writing, I read a lot of thrillers while I'm doing it. I've done my research beforehand. I'll carry on doing research while I'm doing it. But I'll be reading lots of thrillers to get that paciness and to get that sense of chapter structure. Because, I mean, I love nonfiction, but quite often it's written quite dryly. And um, I don't have that burning desire to know, well, what happens next? And who survives? And you know, what's, what's going to happen in terms of, um, you know, violent acts or skullduggery or, um, you know, heroism. So for that, I turn to, to fiction. Yes, yeah, so you don't need to make up the stories. They're good enough without having to make Precisely. them up. Precisely. Yeah. And it just kind of feels like a bit of a slap in the face to the people that did survive and so bravely told their stories to journalists and politicians and the police. Um, to then say, oh, do you know what? I'm just going to add to that. Yes, you, do, you simply don't need to. No, no. no. Have you got any plans to write about a book about a shipwreck around the southwest coast? Well, I have actually been approached about some shipwrecks down there um, by people who've, who've read my books and then you know very politely got in touch, which I'm really grateful for. And they've said, oh, what about this one or what about that one? And I, I'm kind of looking at various shipwrecks for. Um, future books because although at the moment I'm, I'm passionately involved with um, this one, The Ocean Monarch which um, burnt on 1848 um, there's always room for, <laughs> for more, shipwrecks more shipwrecks in my brain yeah. yeah. so um, who knows I mean I'd particularly like to find out more about um, animal related shipwrecks um, because my um, father-in-law was actually telling me about his dad surviving a shipwreck um, it was full of cattle. It was on. It was between um, Scotland and Ireland, and he survived by holding onto a cow's tail and letting it swim. Oh. And um, I just thought that was so magical. And it's not recorded anywhere, so I want to record it. Yes. And um, I was thinking, well, what other shipwrecks are there where people have had similar things happen? And it's just kind of overlooked. 
because if you're an animal, animal lover and you, you've actually got yes. animal heroes, you kind of want to go, yeah, come yeah, on. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I, I can't believe, actually, we've already been talking for 25 minutes. Oh, sorry. Don't, no, don't, <laughs> don't apologise. That's exactly what the show's about. Um, how can people find out more about your books, Jill? I mean, I'd, I'd certainly recommend following at Jill Hoffs, it's Jill with a G, on Twitter, because you'll learn about the research that, that Jill does. She often tweets about it. But if you've got somewhere that people should visit to find out more about your work? Um, well, that's a really good kind of placeholder. Um, if you go to Amazon or to Pen and Sword, um, they've got my books on there um, in various formats. Um, and yeah, if you, if you email me, I can always answer questions if, if I'm able. Do you um, want to give people your email? And I, just yeah. thinking there may be people listening. Oh, that sounds like my phone. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do when something happens? <laughs> No, I think I've stopped it now. How <laughs> embarrassing. Right, carrying on. Yeah, oh, totally ignore that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, my email address is my name at hotmail.co.uk. So that's G-I-L-L-H-O-F-F-S. And, yeah, I mean, I, I, I like to give it out because quite often descendants will get in touch or people who've maybe yes. dived the wrecks and it's like, oh, tell me more, tell me more. So please I'm get in touch. I'm I'm really sorry if you have to draw this to a close because I'd love to have you on again when your next book comes out and we can talk more about it but the time's just flown by you've chosen a track to end with haven't you um, do you just want to tell us what it is and why and I, I just want to say a huge thank you um, to Jill for, for talking about this this morning and really heartily recommend her books for anyone who's thinking about Christmas presents oh thank you so um, yes introduce your track and Okay, it's Heroes and Villains by the one and only Beach Boys. I grew up listening to this and I can't think of a more appropriate song for Captain Stinson and the like. Thank you very much, Jill. No problem, thank you. I've been in this town so long that back in the city I've been taken for a lost and gone and unknown for a long, long time. Fell in love years ago with an innocent girl from the Spanish and Indian home. Life with the heroes and villains.